Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line. And in front of the lens, too, especially on today's show uh, with an exclusive interview I'm very excited uh, to share with you. Um, Caleb Landry Jones, Oscar bound, fingers crossed, Oscar bound for his amazing, amazing performance in The Outpost as... Medal of Honor recipient Staff Sergeant Ty Carter. Um, I adore Caleb. I have not in 10 years, it's been 10 years since we interviewed. I interviewed him. We sat down for the last exorcism years ago with Patrick Fabian, Ashley Bell. Uh, and as our regular listeners know, Ashley has been on the show live uh, talking about her passion project, uh, Love and Bananas, uh, about the, the uh, Asian elephants. Uh, she also has been on the show talking about another one of her films, The Marine. Patrick Fabian has been on the show talking about some of his indie projects. So I love that everything comes full circle and that these wonderful talents who were just starting out 10 years ago are with us. They've grown. And as Caleb talks about in our interview, He's got a lot more tools on his Batman belt right now, and he sure does. Um, he is amazing as the outpost is. Any of you that follow me on social media, be it uh, BTL Radio Show on Twitter, Movie Shark D on Twitter, um, Behind the Lens BTL Radio Show on Facebook, or my personal Facebook page, Debbie Lynn Elias, um, you know my love for and respect for this film, what Rod Lurie has done, what all the boys have done. And I got news for you. Next week, we're also going to be talking about, still talking about the, out, the Outpost, because we are going to have my exclusive interview with, I want to get Taylor's name totally and completely correct. Ah, where's my note? This just popped into my head to mention it to you, so now I'm looking for it. Um, where is it? Yes, Taylor John Smith, who plays Lieutenant Bunderman. Uh, also, another dynamic performance. Uh, Lieutenant Bunderman uh, had received the Silver Star for uh, the Battle of Kamdesh. He was elevated to Distinguished Service Cross last year. Uh, so next week, you're going to hear my exclusive with Taylor. Today you're going to hear my exclusive with Caleb, but after that, we're going to hear from writer-director Mike Arthur, who's going to join us live to talk about his new documentary. And for those of you watching on the Adrenaline Radio Facebook live stream right now, you're going to notice our tablescape looks a little tasty today with colanders and various pastas. Well, that's in honor of Mike's documentary, I Pastafari. A Flying Spaghetti Monster Story. Yes, folks, there is a religion. Pastafarians. And one of the most fun documentaries I've seen. It's a quick 56 minutes long. Uh, but all over the world. There are more than 10 million followers, apparently. Uh, so I can't wait to talk to Mike about iPostafari. So what do you do when you're talking a pasta movie and a pasta religion that's all noodly and the spaghetti monster? Um, you bring pasta and colanders into the studio. What can I say? But before we get silly with Mike at the half hour mark, um, we're going to go ahead and I'm going to let you take a listen to Caleb Landry Jones. And as I said, I adore Caleb. Caleb speaks from his heart, his authenticity, his innocence. Um, 
He is a real movie buff too. A lot. Of, this is a very. This interview has been excised, trimmed down for the show. There's still about over another forty minutes of interview that is not even included here, because we went off talking about multiple war films that he loves and and his take on those and cinematography and um, an incredible conversation. But he is. He really is a cinephile, but everything comes from Caleb's heart, and that is the key to his performances, and that is the key to his performances, Ty Carter. So, without any further ado, take a listen to my exclusive with Caleb Landry Jones talking The Outpost. How are you? I'm good. I'm doing, I'm doing very good, especially considering, I suppose. <laughs> Well, right now you have everything to actually feel good about. Congr- double congratulations, Caleb, as playing Ty Carter in the Outlook, and then your new album. Oh yeah. Well, I, I want to say, Debbie, thank you, thank you very much for for uh, that was a, a really wonderful review. I don't know if I've ever read a review that was that that. that praised me and the film I, I've been a part of so highly. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. It's well-deserved, Caleb. And I have to say, it's so, it's so great to talk to you. The last time, after all these years, the only time you and I ever got to speak was for The Last Exorcism, 10 years ago. Oh, okay. I was trying to figure it out. Yeah. I was trying to figure out what it was, because I feel like I couldn't, I knew it was... <laughs> Thanks for helping. Yeah, no, that was, I mean, that was one of your very first films. I think it was actually your first press, uh, you know, press junket. Yeah. Well, yeah, that that paid, that that got me out to Los Angeles. That gave me the money to go move out to L.A. and try it out for a few months (laughs) because of that movie. your performance in The Last Exorcism, that showed me right there. You had the chops. There was something about you that would take you far, and... I have watched you religiously for the past decade, Caleb, with all of your performances, with Friday Night Lights, with Lowdown, another tiny little film, <laughs> in, in Stonewall, Antiviral, Get Out. I was tickled to see you in The Dead Don't Die. I, you know, I still love that movie. But then... <laughs> I'm quite partial to it as well. I mean, oh my God. Now... You come, you deliver a performance that is, in all honesty, Caleb, it is a tour de force. It is a once-in-a-lifetime. This is, as, as Staff Sergeant Ty Carter, you are stunning. Oh, you, thank you very much. Rod told me all the stories about when you got the part and what Ty Carter said and how excited you were and even Ty's reaction to you being cast as him. But I got to tell you, Having seen you as Ty Carter, there is no actor out there that could have brought to the table what you brought here, Caleb. Well, thank you very much. That's very, very, very nice of you to say. Number one, you're tackling a role. Now, you were in Stonewall. Stonewall, very real events. But here you are. You're not just tackling a real person. You're tackling a real person who is very much alive, who is very much involved in this film and the making of it. Well, and, ten feet away sometimes. Uh, <laughs> Fifteen. And, feet away. and a battle that has gone down in military history. And for many Americans as part of the uh, the uh, part of America's history. How do you even grasp that when you read the script when you get the phone call all right rod Laurie wants to hire you and you then it dawns on you and you or how do you even approach getting into this mindset we won't even talk about physical yet that's another whole thing but just this uh, mindset of ty carter and this situation well uh i don't know to I don't know to what degree I really, you know, as far as his mindset, if I really know him really any better or not. You know, I, I certainly know him better than I did before uh, Before I met him, certainly, or, you know, or knew anything about, you know, what he did or anything, then I certainly know him more. But I guess my, I'm trying to say that I don't know if I ever really got inside his head or understand 
what went, what went on or goes on in his head exactly or even close. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I spoke to him and I knew what was important to him, to, to you know, to some degree based on what he told me, you know, and what I saw from, you know, the way he was living and things he valued and... I think what he cared, the things he cared about most about getting right in this picture. And then the other big hand in it, though, was my older brother. And, and my, my older brother showed me another, probably another aspect that maybe Ty initially uh, didn't show me. And I think there were there was something about this kind of mixture of, of something that probably helped me in some way to, to realize the importance of, of various aspects of the film or of, of what he was going through. For instance, with Mace. Mm-hmm. And uh, a, lot, a lot revolved around that and a lot revolved around, to some degree, trying to understand as best as I could what went on there. And so I guess that's the closest I went to maybe this idea of in his head or something, what that kind of loss was. And what it you know just what it was what 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 that what that what that was yeah I don't even know <laughs> I don't I don't want to belittle it by putting it in some words or something because what was so great about getting to make the film was to try and show you know these these aspects of, of war his ass of the soldier and what is carried out by the soldier uh, I was hoping I, I think that that was I, I don't know there's something very important in that to me probably more important than anything else I suppose was was this idea of, of, of that situation something else was was not secondary but I, I think I came to that stuff you know a little bit later the, 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 <laughs> I suppose but I don't even know how to talk about it Debbie to be it's tough it, it, it's, it's such a subconscious kind of thing and also, a part of me feels like didn't do as much work as I could have in some respects, and then in other respects, you know, the wrong kind of work, you know, <laughs> and, then, and then get there and you realize that that kind of work isn't going to do you anything, or you know, and, and then this kind of juggling between the right work, the wrong work, procrastination. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just the whole back of everything. Kind of tricky to say, how did you start? Just because it was, it really started with my brother, though, I suppose. And it kind of, the uh, the things I was getting from him and then meeting Ty, Rod wanting to, to put these men, you know, and put this film in a, in a place that sounded to me like my brother wanted as well and I wanted, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the, the kind of film we were, we were, you know, hoping it could be. Mm-hmm. Now your brother was in the mil- was in the military. Yeah, he's a marine. I got to go out to his place in San Diego, and he took me to um, the marine base there. And you know, there are there are just aspects of things that I think only through him that you know. And then maybe if I bring up some of those aspects of Ty, he'd be like, "No, no, no, you know, that's not what it's about for me." You know, and so there's this kind of you know this this mixture of. Uh, because uh, they were both there at the same time. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? I think I was trying to do right somehow, but both of them, I think, is, is is what I cared about the most. Because if I was doing right by them, then I was also doing right by the families. Mm-hmm. And I was also doing right by, you know... Uh, it's a trickle-down, by, by yeah. The soldier. Well, because the, the family was, uh, I think, the biggest thing for, for pretty much, I think, most people in the movie, you know, uh, thinking about... The, the families uh, really would bring it to the place where it needed to be and, mm-hmm. you know, would cut any joking around out for a time. There was, there was this that was very heavy for, I think, everyone. And to me, if to do right by the soldiers, to do right by the family and vice versa. Well, I think, I really think that you did, Caleb. I, I've never really had an a desire to be a part of this particular film. I mean, I want to. I want to be a part of great films and great movies, but and so I don't really, I don't really look at it as oh, I've got to make a western. Oh, I've got to make a military film. Oh, I got to be in, you know. But at the same time, I know that a military film is going to demand a certain something that you know <laughs> another film might not. You know, just as other films demand other things. And my brother and. It becoming it becoming such a such a real a real thing because of my brother 
because I know Jack nothing about, you know, about mm -hmm. what goes on over there and what happened and what that's like and, 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 and these feelings and, and these emotions. And I remember also talking to Jericho and after the film and we were talking about, you know, films from this war that, you know, really show the soldier's psyche. So I was just hoping with Rod adding that scene at the end that maybe, you know, there's a, you know, we got there to some degree, you know, it's, I could, I could hope, you know, and, but you're always your worst critic. <laughs> well, I, you know, don't be too hard on yourself with this one, Caleb. I mean, because you knocked... It meant, it meant the world to have my brother call me and tell me, uh, you know, tell me I did good. That meant everything. And to hear Ty, you know, tell me that I did good. I don't know. That was, that was, that's kind of, I suppose, the pinnacle of what I was... If I could, if I could achieve a, achieve a nod from, from from either of them, did it make you nervous having Ty on set ten feet away from you at times? I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely, but but in a good way. It's like kind of up the ante kind of thing. If if there wasn't a party that wasn't going to show up, it's showing up now. <laughs> so it was horrible and fantastic all at the same time, just because of nerves and to do right by him and not just one but needing to do right by him and at the same time needing to do right by Rod mm -hmm. <laughs> and all of a sudden needing to do juggling a few things I love the arc that you, that Carter goes on in the film in the early part of the film there's that great nighttime quote unquote heart to heart talk where it's like nobody wants to talk to me everybody leaves me out why? And then Carter kind of gets a little dressing down as to why, hey, nobody likes you. <laughs> but then we get to the, then we get to the hour seven mark of the film. October 3rd starts and the battle starts. There is such a shift and the dynamic and relationship between Carter and Mace, you blow that so sky high, Caleb. That those scenes where in the Humvee, and then determined, the sweat on your brow, the sweat on your body, you're running around in shorts, you're trying to drag ammo everywhere, and then you're hauling ass with this guy on a litter, and his life is hanging in the balance. I don't know how you manage to juggle and find the perfection of that emotional moment and that physicality, especially when you've got Lorenzo and his camera operator going backwards as you're running into the camera carrying a body. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, <laughs> those, those Lorenzo and the, and the crew, the camera crew, those guys were, I mean, you notice them, but you don't notice them at the same time. Maybe it's the help of some, you know, some explosions going off and uh, Greg's, you know, SFX crew, you know, getting at it. <laughs> in the distance but there was a real a real uh, kind of availability to be able to put yourself in, almost more accessible in in a, in, a, in in the in, a, in a, keeping yourself in the moment or in that position just because of rods uh, choices these long shots and lorenzo dancing you know and really just floating around and you never felt, uh, I didn't particularly, sometimes we'd have to slow something down right here or someone else had to slow, you know, like uh, D-Rod had to slow it down his run a little bit at one point, you know, and keep let camera catch up. But like, there really, there really wasn't like, I don't know, it was, it was really one, one piece, you know, it, it was, it was very fast, I suppose, at how, how quick, you know, from rehearsing the movements to shooting the movement to two takes to three takes whatever to how fast from rehearsal to the first take you know like everybody's where they need to be and everybody knows and if they if they screw up they know where they screwed up and for the most part like it it wasn't difficult in that way so like bringing up lorenzo it was like he was they were like they were like a fly you know like wow you, you know but not landing on your you know your face so you didn't <laughs> have to swat it away and they were just floating around you know and you really didn't you really felt like you could go anywhere you really felt like uh, anything could happen you could fall you felt like you know just anything could happen and, and like i said because of the shot and 
and it forced everyone to i think to really be present in a way that including the camera crew and everybody you know mm-hmm. to be present in a way that really made that stuff not easy i want to say but just uh, a little more available to to be done i suppose or something mm-hmm. I, I don't know nothing felt like we were squeezing anything because we couldn't get it to work everything it felt like it was going to work it was just a question of you know all the little pieces but mm-hmm. it didn't seem like anything was impossible ever it was just trying to get the, that moment right and whatnot but at the same time you didn't give too much of a chance to think about <laughs> if you were getting it right or not because you were having to do some and i find that like the more physical something is, the easier it is for me to be able to to get in, to, to find something. I think it just, I, I was also really lucky in a way that the film is, is set in a way, the script is set in a way, you know, where Ty's character comes in the way that he does mm-hmm. and, you know, is trickled about the way that it is and then it becomes something that you might not have expected at the beginning, you know what I mean? It's yeah. Just, that's all that's all the script you know that's all the script is really good and it enabled this and and it just worked out really well that i was still nervous and trying to still find the character or what what my version of this character was you know and by the time it's physical it's no more <laughs> question about who you are or anything it just comes down to now you're i don't know all the work that's done before everything is there's no really doubting yourself because you just have to do it and mm-hmm. I think it's just so many variables that I really lucked out on you know it's just that helped me in a lot of ways and I think what it comes down to is just a really great crew and Rod you know with as much energy as like a 17 year old and, and and the actors all these English guys that you know yeah. were English doing such great work and building from the set design and building it you know like and us getting to work out and live in there as much as we want to you know except for going back to the hotel at night and Rod put me in another hotel you know hoping that would create some animosity and I don't know if it created animosity but it certainly created distance (laughs) (laughs) I certainly wasn't over there as much as I would have been but then that's good because then it takes the choice away from me, you know, do I want to, can I, can I, you know, do I allow myself to go hang out tonight, you mm-hmm. know, or do I keep to myself because I think that'll help somehow, you know, and he took that choice away a bit, which is great. So, you know, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of aspects, you know, that I think really helped me figure out whatever it was that I was supposed to figure out the job, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and then try to do something tie, you know, explaining some of these feelings, you know, and what scared shitless really means, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, I suppose also from coming from watching so many war films where, you know, all of this kind of John Wayne candor, I love a lot of those Apache, you know, <laughs> Ford of the Apaches, and, you know, a lot of these John Ford films. You but and me both. There's an, there's an aspect of that I hope to get deeper, you know. Yeah. And, and, Rod really gave me a chance with this and, you know, and Ty and my brother John really let no expense to let me know, you know, just how tired you are, how mm-hmm. angry you are, how various degrees of, of emotion that I think I know, but I only know maybe degrees of it. At the same time, there's something there to identify with as well, just human Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I'm not so good at talking about all this, Debbie. Oh, that's quite. You're doing just fine, Caleb, because it's okay. from it's from your heart. That's and that's what counts. Well, that's what makes it not so easy to talk about because yeah. there's so much to try and get right. Or I can tell you, Caleb, that you are just as sweet and authentic now as you were ten years ago when we talked about last exorcism. <laughs> Thank you very much. I've got I've got a little bit bigger of a Batman belt on. I didn't have anything in my Batman belt at the time. <laughs> now, you got experience, You got a lot of things in your <laughs> Batman belt, but you haven't lost you haven't lost who Caleb is, and I think that is a real testament to you to your upbringing. You have yeah, not I was lost. Say, if, I'm, if I'm an all right guy, it's because of my mom and dad. <laughs> 
just kidding. They did a good job at the beginning of going. You know, I don't know, and I'm I'm trying, Debbie. But, you're d- you know. you're doing fine, Caleb. You are doing just fine. You know, I've got to ask you, as an actor, you haven't done a film like The Outlook before that had really used all the one all the long oneers that Rod uses in The Outlook. Yeah, as an know. as an actor, do you like that? Not like it? Undecided? opportunity to ask you about your new album the mother stone uh, and i have to say i watched yeah, your thanks to the outpost <laughs> i mean thanks i watched your, your i watched the music video for flag day wow wow you blew my mind with that it is the music is almost like a circus sideshow and then it switches in there but the visuals are incredible, Caleb. That whole thing is fabulous. Oh, well, thanks. That's yeah. My girlfriend and I. She's a she's an artist, and and she's a. I mean, she's a. I guess a real <laughs> real artist. <laughs> and so we went out to Home Depot and got a bunch of supplies and made whatever kind of popped into our head <laughs> and, then, and then put some of it together for, for a video. It's beautiful, Caleb, the use of color, the geometric shapes, the actual VFX where you're filtering things and you're coming in and out. Absolutely beautiful. And then the way that you structured it so that there's no vocals until the 2.56 minute mark of the video and then you, right. you deliver something that sound you sound almost like John Lennon until we get to 616 and then you back it out with something deep and you totally catch me off surprise at every turn in the video <laughs> and I love it 
Where? What is this creativity in you? You go from playing a guy like like a Medal of Honor winner, Ty Carter. Recipient, Debbie. Recipient. recipient. That's true. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, it's always recipient. I know. God, I slip. Um, but you go from that to a, the creativity of your music and a video like this. Where? And you play in films that, where there's exorcisms taking place. Where? Where does all of this come from, Caleb? Uh, I mean, I don't know, Debbie. Uh, I mean. It's, it's, all the, I think it's all the same thing, <laughs> more or less. Just uh, I've been having to do music interviews, so I've, I found myself falling into line of creating more problems by talking about it. <laughs> I realized later, but but I mean, it's just I don't know. Uh, having emotions and trying to you know finding ways to get them out. And I'm lucky that I'm lucky that. Uh, I don't know that like technology is to the point to where you can record at home and mm -hmm. that enables me to to give me confidence I suppose to do it myself same same it, it's always been there <laughs> it's always it's always it's always there I suppose and 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 films sometimes uh, uh before I was able to do movies I was making a lot of music and I, I wasn't putting it out and I was wanting to wait for the right time, and uh, same thing like with films. You want to, you know, I wanted to do films that were important to me rather than just anything. But at the same time, you need to get your foot in the door somehow. Yeah. So it means you got to audition for your CSIs and sing Under the Sun, and you're, uh, you know, and what was it? Uh, Hunky Santa Claus was one, <laughs> but yes. I don't think that was a real audition. <laughs> but like, uh, but it was a real movie. It was a real TV movie. So I, I think with the music, I was just trying uh, to hold back from, to wait to try to put it out at a, somehow that felt like a right time. And I, I, by showing Jarmusch some music, he told me about, you know, this label, this guy at a label, also my name, Caleb. And so that just worked out. But it really all came out of like, uh, been making music for so long and tired of it not coming out. <laughs> I'm tired of all these songs nothing happened to them it'd be like making movies at home but not sharing them with anybody doesn't sound <laughs> i mean it, it's okay but it's only okay for a period of time i think at some point you want i, I want to see what other i want to share something or express it and see what other people think i think as well and see see what happens you know <laughs> you know who likes it and he doesn't there's a, there's a great need to, to get this stuff out and it's just music has been a way really early that it, I was able to get it out. And then as acting in, in high school became, I got a job and then another job and then another job and then last exorcism that kind of initiated a, a confidence and still the confidence to, to kind of make or break it kind of thing. And music seemed like it was just going to take way too long <laughs> to get my foot to <laughs> Little did I know acting was going to, you know, you're going to have to work you know, It ain't overnight either. I think I was hoping for that James Dean, you know, three you know, ah. first movie kind of deal. But I didn't realize at the time how much TV he did before. You know? Before. I think, I think that was my first year getting to LA going, oh, Dean did a lot of television. And <laughs> going like, oh, okay, you're going to, you, you better bullet no matter what. There's <laughs> always going to be, there's always going to, there's no such thing as easy, I think. Well, I think that your trajectory, your trajectory with film and music, I think the path that it's gone, I think it's perfect so that now they, they coincide, they intersect at this moment with something as powerful as your performance in The Outpost and your music at the same time. I think it gives everybody a chance to really see, you know, your range as a creative force as an actor, as a songwriter, as a, you know, a musician, your career, your trajectory has gone. Oh, I'd, I'd love to go by a different name by every film, but I can't do that. <laughs> no. And I'd have loved to go gone by another name for the music, but I was told that that wasn't as good of an idea. <laughs> no, no, just, you know, but your trajectory, everything has come together at this moment, Caleb. I really hope that going forward, 
that you can, that you find a balance where you're doing films you love and doing music that you love, and everybody gets to see and hear it all. Oh, that's that's yeah, that's I feel I feel like that's well, I mean that's what I've been getting to do this past like uh, like last year, two years ago, I went from uh, an audition for for playing a robot to going to a studio and recording strings, and that's just. That's, that's as good as it gets See? in my book. Or, I mean, I don't know. That was, I don't know. And it probably helped the audition because I was so stressed about the string that day. You know? but, See? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm very blessed. And I've been dreaming of getting the chance to do to do this stuff and only hope. But you know, dreams do come true, Caleb. I just hope there's some, something there to each of it. Well, Caleb, this has been a pure delight talking to you today. I'm sorry it's taken us 10 years to talk again. Yeah, 10 years later, Debbie. But look where you are now, 10 years later. I'm so excited for you. From getting some folks to pull off, to go back from where they came from, to being a Medal of Honor recipient. I would have never, I'd have never thought I'd be, I'd have played, I'd gotten a chance to, to play someone like that. Yeah. <laughs> you always wonder what kind of chances you're going to get, or you know what I mean, with yeah. doors will open and, and that goes, oh wow, holy smokes, they think you can, well they must, they must think you can do it for some reason. And then I remember when Rod said, it's only because you said you could do it, I was like, oh boy, because I was lying out of my teeth, you know, I'm glad you... <laughs> I'm glad you bought that because I knew I could do something. But gee, I don't know. You never know. You lied real good, and you and you turned the lie into truth, Caleb. <laughs> thank you, David. All right, and thank you, thank you again. Debbie. You're welcome, Caleb. Thank you. Bye bye. And that was. Our exclusive with Caleb Landry Jones talking about the outpost. And yes, I know, Rod Lurie, you can slap me with a wet noodle next time you see me for for saying The Outlook twice. I don't know why I said The Outlook. The Outlook, however, is also a very good film starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, I think it's about 14 years old. But the film, not, not Joe. But uh, yes, so that was Caleb Landry Jones. Put him on your radar for award season. Do not... Let him be overlooked, nor this film. Uh, and Caleb does, he has a very musical side to himself, also. So check out his new album that just dropped, uh, and it's exciting. And then next week, we're going to continue our discussion, more coverage on The Outpost with the wonderful Taylor John Smith. Uh, you're going to hear that interview. But now we're going to shift gears. We're going to we're shifting gears, shifting into something extremely fun right now as we welcome Mike Arthur to talk about iPostafari, a flying spaghetti monster story. Welcome, Mike. <laughs> hey, Debbie, thanks for having me. I am thrilled to have you. What a documentary. What a documentary. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's definitely one of a kind, that's for sure. Wow. And 56 minutes, boy, this moves so quick. Uh, I couldn't believe that it was over when it was over. It's so enjoyable. Yeah, I mean, I have a tough time staying awake for 90 minutes, so <laughs> I feel like shorter is better. <laughs> I, it is so enjoyable from beginning to end. You have it packed with a ton of information, but you present it in a very entertaining and fun manner. I'm particularly enamored with the insertion of Cecil B. DeMille's 1923 version of the Ten Commandments um, at repeated intervals. Uh, that's a kick. But where where did you hear about Pastafarians, the Flying Spaghetti Monster? Talk to me. This is not in the normal mainstream of things. Um, how did you find out about this? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it started back in 2005. So I had always kind of heard of it, like I knew of it. It basically started when a uh, physics graduate wrote a letter to the Kansas pool, uh, Public School Board who just made a decision to teach creationism alongside evolution in science class. Mm -hmm. And so this, this guy wrote an article that basically said, well, 
if you're going to do that, that, then you should also include my beliefs in science, which is that a flying spaghetti monster created the earth. So it was satire to kind of point out this false equivalency that, you know, evolution, a theory based on science and observation is the same thing as, you know, a religious idea. So it wasn't until I moved to the Netherlands in 2016 when I saw an article about the Netherlands recognizing the church of the flying spaghetti monster as a religion. Uh, that caused me to reach out to some of the guys involved, and I found out there was a trial where this pastafarian was trying to wear his religious headwear for his state ID photo, which is a spaghetti calendar, and he was denied. There was a trial. I filmed it, and that's basically what kind of set me down this pastafarian uh, hole. <laughs> I, I just... I it blew my mind. I, I'm looking at this uh, the, from the legal standpoint. And we go from the Netherlands, and then we go to Germany and Austria, and beyond. And the way you have structured your through line here is fabulous—a fabulous, cogent through line that makes perfect sense. You have some, in addition to many members of many Pastafarians themselves. And not just from the Netherlands, but from Netherlands, Germany, Austria, from different countries. Um, you bring in philosophers and authors, legitimate, yeah. <laughs> legitimate uh, people uh, who study the humanities and things like this. So, you know, how do you go about, you've got your 2016, uh, this trial, now, where do you go from there as a filmmaker? You have that. So then what's your next jumping off point? Because the amount of archival footage you have in here, photographs and all, this, I can tell, was a very tedious and protracted uh, adventure. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, once I had the trial footage, you know, I saw that this, needed some context, especially since, you know, the flying spaghetti monster started in the U S but now I'm living in Europe and I'm an indie filmmaker. This isn't a big budget thing. So basically I go to Germany and Austria and Netherlands because it's easily accessible. You right. know, I can get there by train. Um, but I needed, I needed, I needed some context. And since I am American and I feel like the message of pastafarianism and flying spaghetti monsterism is the most relevant now in the U.S. because of our constant battle between the separation of church and state mm -hmm. and science skepticism. I wanted to get some well-known figures kind of in this uh, academic world to explain why the Pastafarians do what they do. Because a lot of times it's just written off as some kid wears the colander and gets an ID and it's funny, ha-ha. But there's a reason for what they're doing, and that reason is quite profound. And so, yeah, I, I got Daniel Dennett, who's a, who's a really just brilliant, he's one of my hero, heroes. He's a, a philosopher, an American philosopher and a cognitive scientist. And then I got Ed Larson, who wrote a best-selling book about the Scopes trial, the 1925 mm -hmm. Scopes trial, which really set in motion this conflict between yes. the separation of church and state that still exists today in the U.S. It sure does. It sure, <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> and it, it, seems, it seems to be getting it seems to be getting worse, and so that's why I felt the timing of this film, you know, not just about issues of church-state separation, but science skepticism, especially. You know, we're in the midst of a pandemic, and people still think that science is just an opinion, not a process. Mm -hmm. So that's why I, I think the timing of this film is perfect. Oh, I, the timing couldn't be any better than than for right now. It absolutely, uh, <laughs> you couldn't have asked for anything better than this. Obviously, the, the flying spaghetti monster god was looking down on you when it came to distribution and release <laughs> of this film. Definitely. Uh, definitely divine intervention. I'll tell you. What was, because of all the footage, all the archival, and, and there's legitimate news sources covering this, how did you go about amassing all of this material on a low-budget, no-budget, micro-budget film? Um, you don't have the funds to have a big research department. So what was that like for you as an indie filmmaker? Yeah, I mean, this was pretty much a one-man show. I mean, I, I hired help when I could. I did a crowdfunding campaign and, and raised a little bit of money to help out. But 
it, it just kind of amassed over time. You know, this was a, a four-year project for me, mm-hmm. three to four year. And, uh, and so I just kind of accumulated a lot of ideas. And filtering those down into a coherent story was one of the biggest challenges, especially for me, because I'm not a trained documentary filmmaker. I mean, this is my second film. Mm-hmm. I never went to film school or anything. I, I kind of just figured it out as I go. Um, so, I mean, I think an experienced film filmmaker probably could have made this film in about a year, <laughs> but, <laughs> but for me, it took a lot more time, um, but it was just trial and error, playing with clips, seeing what makes sense, trying to make it so the audience kind of thought for themselves, because that really is the purpose of Pastafarianism. It's not to lecture to somebody about right. some idea or, you know, have some debate. It's to trick people into critically thinking for themselves, because the second you say, it's ridiculous that a flying spaghetti monster created the universe and blah, blah, blah. How much more crazy is it than the Genesis story of, of any religion? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And if we're talking about beliefs, why does it matter whether you believe in God or Allah or the flying spaghetti monster or Thor or no God at all? Why does that impact your rights? So mm-hmm. that's, that's really one of the main messages of, of, of spaghetti monsterism. And I think that really comes through with the various trying to get driver's licenses. You know, you really delve into there's a lot of there's core legal issues here and you really bring that forth. Um, And then you counter that and buffer that with a lot of the discussion, um, the conviction that the Pastafarians have and a lot of the exemplars. It's like, all right, I'm wearing my religious headwear. It looks like a colander. But then you're wearing a turban in your picture. Uh, You're wearing a burqa. So why, you know, what's the difference? And you really do. You you let your audience make decisions and think for themselves, which is exactly what this is about. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the biggest challenges with with a topic like this is that since nobody's really taken the time to explain Pastafarianism, mm-hmm. people just see a guy with a colander on their head and think they're just mocking religious people, which right. they aren't at all. Once you understand what they're doing, they're going after religious privileges in the law that are available to religious people and not available to secular people. So wearing something on your head is not a big deal. It, you know, it doesn't harm yeah. other people. It, it's, it's, a, it's a minute exemption in laws. But once you examine the purpose of that, you inevitably have to go into the other exceptions in laws, like being able to opt out of vaccines Mm -hmm. uh, because of your religious beliefs or getting tax subsidies to preach that science is a lie. (laughs) You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? So, yeah, it's it's, it's really, I thought thought it was really important to give the Pastafarians more than a headline. Mm -hmm. And, And you do that really well. So, you know, which leads me to ask about the editing process on this. Were you editing yeah. as you went? Did you wait until you had accumulated everything and had your post-it notes all over the walls as to where you think you're going to go with this? What was that process like? Because you do have so much archival, cinematic, and photographic footage in here. Yeah, I mean, it was brutal because I'm not an editor. I mean, the, the film was made in Final Cut Pro, which I don't know if a lot of like big-budget filmmakers even use. Um, and, and like I said before, it was it was just trial and error. I mean, I tried to edit everything right after I shot it because I shot most of the film as well. So mm-hmm. I, I bring the footage home and try to, 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 to chop it into a digestible form that would be easier to kind of connect later. And then I just went through a bunch of different versions. And, I mean, the version that's on iTunes right now is, God, I don't know, the 15th <laughs> version. And, you know, I, I don't have a huge network in the film community because, you know, I'm, a, I'm an indie guy who doesn't have any training. So, really, it was, it was showing it to friends and, and just constantly second-guessing my own choices and you know, whether this was going to come off as like religious propaganda or whether the joke wasn't going to land or whether it would be just a joke, which mm. is not what I wanted at all. I mean, you know, this there's some funny parts in the film for sure, because, you know, one of the central tenets of the Pastafarian faith is, is having a good sense of humor and not taking mm-hmm. your beliefs too seriously. But 
you know, this is a serious subject matter with a with a really legitimate message, and I didn't want it to get lost in the pasta pun. Yeah. You know? And you even threw in some really cute animation in there, popping up all the deities uh, since the beginning of time. Um, that really, people love visual aids like that. Let's face it. Uh, you know, when you, can lay, when you can lay all that out in one image on the screen with all these little deities popping up all over, including Vikings, which actually bore a strong resemblance to Thor if, you know, he had a helmet on. Um, so... I think it was Thor. I think that was you Thor. You think it yeah. was Thor? Okay. Thor is a god. Yes. And not just in the in the Marvel MCU. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> but I love how you integrate all of that, the gods and the deities, um, and you then balance that with trial before the European Court of Human Rights where they have a criteria, and one of their criteria for this to be deemed... Uh, "Quote unquote legal is it has to be serious. Serious is a criteria, uh, and right. the court doesn't deem pastafarianism as being serious and sees it as a joke. But I love the conviction as debate as yeah, debate is offered to the court that satire is used to attract people to get to an understanding." Satire, comedy, it's used in times of stress, in times of pain to console people. It's used to draw people in so that they can then expand their own horizons. I love how you cut that entire segment. Love it. Yeah, I mean, satire, it's a tool. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and it, it is the tool of the Pastafarian religion. Other religions use other tools, you know? They use threats of damnation <laughs> they use mm -hmm. you know uh, very charismatic speakers you know there's all kinds of different tools to get the message but the reality is today there's so much noise that you have to do something unique to break through mm -hmm. and that's what i loved about the pastafarians is that wearing a colander on their head it's hard to ignore that <laughs> you know what i mean i mean i think i think me and many pastafarians wish we could just have like a a fact-based, rational, respectful debate about religion's role, role in society today. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, that's a non-starter because either religion's off the table or it's this combative, offensive, you know, ugly debate that just ends with someone saying, oh, well, you just got to have faith. Mm -hmm. So Pastafarians use this tool of satire to kind of cut through that, and they do it in a friendly, uh, you know, attractive interesting way and that's something that really shines through here mike is that all of these people kind calm quiet polite nice there's no temper tantrums there's uh, there's no damnation i found that so striking um actually felt very welcoming watching it um and that surprised me. That surprised me. Yeah, but you know that that is that is their method, and it's it's you know it's interesting because a lot of people ask me, like, is this like an anti-religious thing? And I'm a humanist, so I, I basically it means I believe humans can solve human problems mm -hmm. without the need of a supernatural deity. Uh, but this isn't like an atheist movement or a humanist movement because, in a way, the Pastafarians are fighting for religious freedom yeah. for all religions. Mm -hmm. Because the second you go into a courtroom and a judge or a state official says, your religion is real, here are some rights and privileges, yep. yours is not real, therefore you have less rights and freedoms, that's a violation of the human right that is religious freedom. Mm -hmm. So in a way, the Pastafarians are, are, are actually fighting for this idea of religious freedom, but religious freedom must be equal to freedom from religion in order for religious freedom to actually be a thing. Mm -hmm. You cannot use your religious freedom as a, uh, a means to, you know, project how other people should live their, live their lives. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and, and one of the biggest points of this, this movement is that you can't have religious freedom unless you have a separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, absolutely. And you see that here. 
Um, you know, a big thing, a big element in this documentary that I am enchanted with is your scoring. The score is filled with whimsy. It It is just lovely. You get to about the 49-minute mark, though, is court decisions are being handed down, and you go into a more somber piano, um, and then at the 51-minute mark, you know, as uh, the court in Germany rules, 2017, 2018, no, 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 and you bring in voiceless chorale music. The musical aspect of this documentary is so well-structured, Mike. That's the first time anybody said that. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> I love. Well, yeah, I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't money for like a uh, a composer or anything. This is just tracks that uh, I got off a you know a, a music licensing site, and I edited, uh, you know, towards the film. And honestly, when I watch it, those are the those are the moments that I second guess the most are the musical parts. Oh so no! I appreciate you saying. That. No, I mean it starts off for the bulk of the film with the scoring, uh, with your tracks. It's whimsical. It's light. But then we feel the gravitas as we get into 2017, 2018, you know, Dutch, Germany. Everybody is saying no, no, no. Uh, and you take right. it and it's somber. But that whole idea of inserting that voiceless chorale music at the 51-minute mark, actually 51:20, if we want to get picky, um, is <laughs> that I just thought was fabulous. Because it essentially yeah, evokes I mean, the, the idea. Was, the concept yeah. is great. Evokes the idea of some kind of higher power, be it a flying spaghetti yeah. monster or something that people in more established religions can relate to and identify with. I thought that your musical structure here so well done from beginning to end. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, the, the, that was actually absolutely the purpose was to combine kind of a choir church religious feel but at the same time inject some of the playfulness that you know basically describes the pastafarian religion those two things so well, i appreciate that you noticed that and you know and let's not leave out pirates pirates are a part of the pastafarian <laughs> religious as what religion as well and, yeah and i of course yeah I, basically I, uh no go ahead go ahead i was gonna say yeah um so there's kind of a schism <laughs> in Bostafarianism, which is done kind of in a, as a joke to point out some of the schisms in other faiths. But basically, you know, wearing a colander on your head wasn't in the original open letter to the Kansas school board. You know, he, in, in that they talk about the, uh, the fact that climate change, mm -hmm. the gradual increase of the Earth's temperature over the last two years is due to the reduction in the pirate population. Makes sense. Because the correlation between the two <laughs> is undeniable. So the Pastafarian <laughs> mission is basically to create more pirates in order to help climate change. And this, of course, is a, is a is commentary on, on junk science, you know? Yes. A correlation is not a causation. But this is carried through as a cultural tradition in the, the Pastafarian faith is that they dress like pirates. Well, But I then in 2011, a, a guy named Nico Alm wore a colander on his head and... You know, now we have two groups, kind yeah. of orthodox Pastafarians as pirates and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> new age. <laughs> well, and it seems that the German sect is more orthodox, sticking with, with, yes. with yes, the German sect is, and I, I love how he references in there um, that, you know, we're not like the Austrians. We all know what happens when G Germans don't listen to Austrians. And I just cracked up. <laughs> we, I knew immediately he was talking about Hitler. Um, yeah, yeah, that's hilarious. my favorite part of the I'm sitting there watching yeah. it, and I just started laughing out loud. It was so funny. Uh, you know, for you as a filmmaker, how difficult was going through getting all the licensing and releases for all the all the archival stuff that you had, or did you pull from what was in the public domain? Both. I mean, it, it, that's brutal. That's my least favorite part of, of <laughs> filmmaking. And I wish I could just hire somebody to kind of do that for me one day, <laughs> but that's absolutely brutal. But the footage in the film is a combination. So Cecil B. DeMille's, uh, the 10 commandments that went into the public domain, like oh, a forever. year ago or two years ago, right. As I was kind of mid edit, which was a, was, was a, you know, a gift from the FSM. 
Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot of, uh, there's some stuff I licensed. And then there's also a lot of fair use footage, a lot of news clips about Pastafarianism and so on and so forth. But the biggest complication was that since I was an American, mm-hmm. but I was living in Europe and I didn't know where I was going to be in a couple of years. And mm-hmm. I always kind of intended it to be a U.S. release for the U.S. market. Right. So I had to clear it with European lawyers. I had to clear it with U.S. lawyers. And oh, no. Yeah. It was, oh, no. It Wow. So once you but find that's I mean that's that's part of the job though, you know, you, you you can't you can't release a film without getting, you know, the right people to clear it. And just think, now you know how to do this for your next film. <laughs> yeah, I mean this one's got to work first. Yeah, you know, so once you get it all done, how did you go about finding a distributor for this film? Um I'm sure there weren't yeah, too many. I mean, I'm sure there weren't too many that were jumping up and down, and they're looking at no. it like, "Are you insane?" Um, so I'm curious how the distribution process worked for you, because obviously, whenever somebody makes a movie, you always have to know who is your intended audience, who can you market this to, and. There's nothing more disheartening than when I will ask a filmmaker sometimes, you know, well, who is your audience? Everyone. Well, <laughs> that's the same question a distributor yeah, right. is going to ask. Who do you think is the tar? Everyone. No, you got to, eventually you want everyone, but you got to start somewhere smaller. So how did you, you know, fulfill this distribution process? Well, it was, you know, I was the, the videographer, the editor, the screenwriter, the the guy that cleared all the <laughs> like I did everything, and I was also the basically the publicist for for a long time until recently I just hired a publicist to help with the launch. But I, I started by trying to build the social media audience, mm-hmm. which since Pastafarianism is is pretty well organized online and pretty accessible, and this was kind of the first film of its kind mm-hmm. that helped a lot. And I did a few marketing campaigns to uh, to spread the word about the crowdfunding campaign that the uh, Pastafarian community really got on board with. And so that helped me kind of build my base, which helped me create somewhat of a more uh, palatable sales pitch. You know what I mean? Because I, I don't have a, a na- recognizable name. I don't have a couple big, you know, award-winning winning films in my uh, on my resume. So I really had to make a strong business case. Um, so once I combined kind of the social media followers with the trailer views, which, you know, were 50,000 or so before anybody had ever heard, like before it screened anywhere, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, 250,000. Whoa. Um, yeah, I mean, so, so it's all relative, of course, uh, you know, a cat chasing a laser pointer gets a million views, but for a, a no budget indie film, you know, I had good numbers, I felt. And so from there, it was just about annoying the hell out of everybody I could I could annoy. And eventually, a couple of them bit. I got Gravitas Ventures to distribute in the U.S., and then internationally, I got distribution through uh, Journeyman Pictures. Oh so my God. I was pretty fortunate, and I think it's I think I'm pretty lucky uh, considering you know the amount of documentary films out there because of how easy it is to make one relatively to you know how it was a couple 10, yeah. 15 years ago. Yes, but how many people can make one? about flying spaghetti monsterism how many can do that i don't know i mean i you know what you know what's funny is that after about a year or two of working on the film i saw the trailer for hail satan by penny lane yes and i thought oh my god somebody who's experienced is kind of doing something similar and they're going to be able to do it faster than me but then i realized one the satanists are doing something completely different but kind of the same mm-hmm. as Pastafarianism. they're going out about it in a different way right and penny kind of paved the uh she kind of made a film like this more Accept- attractive i think uh, acceptable she proved that this kind of content has a pretty large audience so at first i was worried but then i, I think it helped me out and then i gotta i gotta admit i think the whole coronavirus covid shut down in Hollywood helped too. You know, I mean, with a lot of the major studio releases yep. getting delayed, I think I was I was able to kind of sneak through the cracks. Hey, well, anything, obviously, the Flying Spaghetti Monster was looking out for you, Mike. Obviously. 
Clearly. I, I was touched by his noodly appendage. Absolutely. Oh, yes. His noodly appendages are lovely. But now, before I let you go, because we are out of time for the show, but I've got to ask you, what did you now learn as a filmmaker about yourself that's going to get you through to your next film? Um, I mean, that's a great question. I, I, this film was a little bit better, I think, than my first film. My first film was an accident. It was a YouTube video that went viral that I turned into a full-length feature and somehow sold. But I watch that film now and I, I cringe. This film I'm more proud of than pretty much anything I've created. So if anything, I think I've learned to have a little self-confidence in my ability and, and the, the knowledge that the road there is incredibly challenging and you know making an indie film isn't always a, a rational uh investment but if you can break through and, and turn a profit and get an audience then uh yeah then you can maybe finally call yourself a filmmaker so i think i have a little bit more confidence than i did before i i, I started this film and hopefully that'll carry over into the next film so well, instead of being a you know an amateur filmmaker trying to find an audience, I'll be like a normal filmmaker. You got one. <laughs> you got you have one to play. You know you've used the tools in the toolbox, so you're yep. set. You're ready to move on, Mike. This has been fabulous. You have to come back on the show. Yeah, you've got to you. you've got to make another film. You got to come back on the show. Um, this is just so much fun talking to you about this documentary and job well done. Thank you very much, Debbie. I appreciate you having me on to talk about it. And everybody can see this now because it's out on all the digital platforms everywhere. It is. It's on iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Prime, Vimeo, pretty much worldwide, yeah. I mean, with some exceptions. But so, it's out there, so, so, so watch it and follow the film on social media and tell me what you thought. So I Pastafari, a flying spaghetti monster story. See it. It's a lot of fun. Mike, thank you again, and we will talk again soon, I hope. Yes, Debbie, thanks. Ramen. Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Mike Arthur talking about iPostafari, a flying spaghetti monster story. And that is all the time we have today. We went over again, of course. Um, huge thanks again to Caleb Landry Jones, his wonderful publicist who set up the interview for me on Friday. Um, amazing. Talking to Caleb. There's still about another 40 minutes that I excised out that didn't pertain directly to the film or his album. Uh, and again, Rod Lurie, you can slap me, you can beat me, hit me with a noodle. We got plenty of pasta uh, from the Pastafarians um, saying the outlook twice. It's the outpost, and everybody see the outpost. It is amazing, amazing. And next week, you will hear the exclusive with Taylor John Smith talking the outpost again. And joining us live is going to be Bob Rose talking about his new film, Instaband. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. <laughs>